Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly talk show. I'm Chris McCormack and this evening I'm joined by Erica Balsam, author of After, Unique- After Uniqueness, A History of Film and Video in Circulation and the book Exhibiting Cinema in Contemporary Art. Uh, Julia Smith, who is an art historian based in London and Oxford. Uh, Connell McStravick, artist, educator and researcher. And Vladimir Sepet, uh, who is a researcher and film curator. Uh, Vladimir will be discussing the recent exhibition at Peltz Gallery, London, uh, of the film work of Laura Mulvey and Peter Woolen. Uh, Connell will be looking at how we represent queer histories and the archive, and the pressures and effects of LGB- LGBT communities documented largely in urban centres. Uh, Julia will be discussing Civic Duty, an exhibition currently on show at Cell Project Space in London. Uh, but first, I'd like to start with Erica. And uh, who reviewed the Liz, Ro- Liz Rhodes' show at Nottingham Contemporary. Um, that's on through the summer. Uh, Rhodes' work spans nearly 50 years uh, of film practice. And this show in Nottingham being the first retrospective, I think, if I'm right, uh, of this artist's work. I think it might be worth beginning at the start of Rhodes' career. And in a sense, some of her most well-recognized works. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, these, ty- the, these and the types of meanness and the subjectivities they they sort of propose in a way. Well, you certainly talk about Mm -hmm. Um, I would say Liz Rhodes is best known for very materialist works that she made um, in the 1970s. So things like Dresden Dynamo and Light Music, which is a big expanded cinema installation. And after that, she started to think more about the materiality of language. And if there's one thing walking through the galleries at Nottingham Contemporary that you'll notice, it's that her voice is everywhere. And she has um, a particular kind of classed voice Mm -hmm. um, that is sort of dripping with authority. And um, it's quite interesting because this voice comes up in so many of the works, Mm -hmm. and yet um, none of them contain any personal, autobiographical information of really any kind. Mm -hmm. So there's an insistence on her speech, but at the same time, um, it's always in the service of some generalization or abstraction. And so I was interested in thinking about how we could locate that in relation to the sort of um, obsession mm-hmm. with the first person that we find in so much cultural production today. Absolutely. But in a way, also, I, I, what I think of Liz Rhodes's work as well, those early works are largely noise or the, the optical soundtrack is printed with the image itself. And so it's kind of interesting to think about the movement from those kind of early noise works to the vocal or the kind of more grammatical linguistic works that preceded or kind of she subsequently made. It's interesting because um, if you look at the writing around light music, many people um, really fixate on a remark that Liz Rhodes made that said that light music, despite you know looking like this abstract sort of materialist mm-hmm. project, actually was a response to an absence of female composers in the history of music. And so that's how people try and kind of suture over what might seem like a break in the practice between Mm -hmm. the sort of materialist, very sound and noise-based work to um, this interest later um, in feminism, in politics. Um, I'm not sure that I see a lot in light music itself that you can read as a response to an absence of female composers, but... Um, yeah. In fact, I think I remember I've just listened to an interview where she she said the same in a recent t- Tate where they, they rescreened the works at Tate mm-hmm. Tanks. And she she made a similar comment about 
how these works were a response to the absence of female curator, uh, composers during that period, well, any period, really. Um, but in a way, those kind of noise works as well. They're much more about cinema itself and the kind of physical experience that we as viewers have. Do you want to, I mean, in a way, that, that they seem like the base of her work, and then she's kind of moved back to the more traditional cinematic or sort of single-screen works. Yeah, I mean, after light music, um, the rest of the body of work is very consistent. So mm. actually, the early works, arguably, mm. are the exception. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest of the work um, really is remar remarkably consistent across like mm. 40 years yeah. or something, really from light reading um, up to Ambiguous Journeys, which is the new commission. That's about a 50-minute long single-screen video. Um, many of those works deal with text on screen, um, with sort of abstracted found imagery, and then these different sort of uses of her own voice. So the materialist works she's maybe best known for, but actually um, it's kind of an early period that in a way closes. Yeah, it's not something she returns to. Um, and it's kind of interesting in a way just to see that in any case that she's, and the work now is actually digitally work it's not she doesn't really use film in the same materialist way either not at all in fact the the commission ambiguous journeys um really looks like something out of powerpoint or mm. iMovie i mean you can really see the kind of um templates and automatisms effects that are built into that software showing up um on very screen. very yeah. much on screen and she herself then almost becomes uh, a a kind of portal for these testimonies that she is trying to unearth or qualify or present in a way that mm -hmm. she feels are missing from other discourses. Is that where this new work is kind of heading? Yeah, I mean, the new work has, to me, this incredible obsession with facts and with statistics. Okay. And um, that's somewhat surprising if you only know the earlier work, mm. which is quite poetic. Um, in this new work, we see her delivering facts about homelessness, how much it costs to buy citizenship, income tax rates, um, environmental degradation, and she's kind of laying it all out with this absolute moral authority. Um, but the work is so far ranging that it ends up being, it's, it's unclear whether it suffers from a problem of scale or whether it's dramatizing mm -hmm. the problem of scale of trying to think the totality of a global system that is absolutely riddled with inequality, injustice, violence, crisis, and so on. Well, in a sense that almost like it creates a disempowerment. I mean, that's kind of maybe the wrong way of saying it, but in a, as a viewer, you feel like, oh, this is so overwhelming. That's it. There's no further point forward. Yeah, I mean, there is really the sense of, um, okay, you've thrown all of this information mm. at me, and now what? Now what? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking also, I mean, it reminded me a little bit, partly because of the back, the, the period of time that she's sort of been working, the sort of the, the very early maxim from the sort of mm. feminist, sort of, you know, the personal and the the, uh, the political, the, you know, this sort of, and how that in a way also feeds into her work, but also maybe doesn't land in the work as well do you feel i mean how do you feel like in a sense feminist inquiry in the work has kind of 
drawn in or kind of moved in mm. her work? I mean, so yeah, there is that famous uh, maxim, you know, the personal yeah. is political. But another interesting thing about a certain kind of feminist art practice, particularly in this country, and this comes up also in the Movi Wolin um, exhibition, um, is a mistrust of self-expression mm. um, because that idea of, you know, the individual bourgeois subject grounded in interiority and self-expression was actually a male subject and a kind of mythic ideological mm. male subject that had to be dismantled somehow. And I think in light reading, that's very much why we get um, this insistence on she and her as this sort of depersonalized way of speaking to women's experience, but not as the I, not as the unique individual with something really, really important to mm. say, but actually something instead that is at a certain kind of remove. Um, because all of those discourses of kind of psychoanal psychoanalytically inflected semiotic theorization from that time, um, self-expression was really something that was um, in need of debunking. Mm. And so it's in, part and of the yeah, feminist project. You see project. that the structuralist filmmakers also synonymous with that period. Absolutely. You know, Peter Cadal and so on. This sort of this movement away from the image and to the sort of decentered, de desubjectified experience in a way. Mm -hmm. But I guess in a, Liz Rhodes, there's a huge, there's, there's still there's something of that sort of accidental, the kind of the pull of the, the motor itself. So there is something of the, there's something else happening in that work that I guess leads to its kind of captivating quality. But I guess we've, what's why it's been returned to so often in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of how it's installed in Nottingham, it's exactly the same as how it's been, this, the two projectors facing each other with the sort of the bands of light. For light music, yeah. yes. I guess um, this is the first time that Nottingham Contemporary has yeah. given over the entirety of its space to a single yeah. artist. So the show actually does have kind of the room that it needs. Mm. Um, and light music is in quite a large space just on its own. And then the other works are um, kind of separated off and also displayed with timers um, outside the room to sort of indicate when the loop will begin again, okay. which was very helpful. And is there any talk series or any other components? That I are believe being... um, there are a number of talks that are mm. happening. I mean, one notable thing is that the Visible Press has just published sort of a collection of Rhodes's oh, yeah. writing yeah. from the same period. And so I believe just this past weekend there was a launch of that publication and there might be some other events um, happening as and well. Are they... Uh, transcripts or versions of the text that appear in the films, do you know? Some of them yeah. are, um, but then others are um, writings that, that Liz Rhodes um, has done over the years. I gather that she is a keeper of diaries and also um, has you know written very famous texts like Who's History? So there's mm -hmm. a republication of that. Um, and you know, the visible press is devoted to publishing writings by filmmakers. Mm. Um, and in that regard, you know, Rhodes is, is quite an important figure. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that she's been largely overlooked by institutions in this country. I mean, I, I mentioned that uh, works have been screened at the Tate, but largely I, it feels like... There was like... a show at the ICA in maybe, oh, that's right. but it was yeah. smaller. Mm. That's right. And in fact, that focused more on, if I remember right, it was on recent work. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but still, it's kind of interesting that, I mean, other figures like that, do you feel like the Liz Rhodes is synonymous with a particular generation that's been overlooked or? Um, I mean, I think that um, there is so much amazing moving image work that still has not been given its due. Mm. 
Um, and there are lots of reasons behind that. I mean, a, a, a relative lack of a primary market being one of mm. them. So you don't have sort of big galleries coming in to work with these estates and push mm. exhibitions forward. Um, but, um, I mean, the work is gradually starting to be done, and you can see the recovery of Rhodes alongside the recovery of other figures, whether it's like Carolee Schneemann or Barbara Hammer, who have also, you know, recently in their cases, unfortunately, like very much bound up in their deaths, um, has has mm. come to, to new prominence. So at least in Liz Rhodes's case, it's happening while she's still around, she's making work. And of course, that's it also chimes with the, the shift in the ways in which moving image has become part of the, the museum and the gallery structure as well. And the periods when Liz Rose was making work in the 70s, 70s uh, they would not have been necessarily uh, a primary way of screening or showing works in a gallery space at that point. Exactly. So there's a shift as well. Mm-hmm. Has anyone else seen the... You, you know, the you must know the works, though, over the years, though. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, maybe we come back to Liz Rhodes' thinking and uh, and her practice, but we we have to move on to Julia. And um, you reviewed the uh, show that's currently on at SL Projects, uh, Civic Duty, uh, which is a it's a group show uh, for artists. Um, for which I, I mean, to me, you know, some are more well known. There's two are quite very well known in a way. Donald Ro- Donald Rodney and uh, Adrian Piper, alongside Carolyn Lazard and Sam Lip. Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought that was what was most interesting to me. Um, I was very partial to the show before even seeing it because who doesn't like Adrian Piper and uh, Donald Rodney? So, um, but I was very, I was very pleased, kind of impressed with the effort that um you know so project space made to to think hard about how to pair these two artists with these two much younger peers so um one thing that i thought was very interesting was how the show in a way really played down the racial element that's uh, so often immediately associated with an artist like Adrian Piper uh, and an artist like Donald Rodney. Um, And this wasn't something that was foregrounded, even though I think it was very much a part of um, the the works on show. So the show really, if there is one theme to Mm. be teased out, uh, is this idea of um, exploring... I guess restriction, coercion as um, elements that shape our existence in in public space, uh, whether it's really public or privatised. So I'm thinking uh, about hospitals as much as the the space of the street, the sidewalk um, and various other institutional um, spaces. Um, in Adrian Piper's case, the world of labour infrastructure. So um, discrimination is a very big part of uh, how these artists, I think, came to um, hit their head against uh, this world of, of restrictions and sort of make it into the uh, artistic material and explore it. So um, it's a very important important part of their identity and I think an important part of the identity of the works but I I appreciated the attempt, the desire to make the works stand on their own legs and not overload the selection with too much narrative um, and so 
uh, it was an interesting show to go and see. It's quite a spare show, visually, um, and I think that works quite well. I mean, these are four artists, obviously famously Adrian Piper, an artist who's worked uh, as with conceptual strategies, who works very much with you know, paper and language. And although uh, she's formally incredibly sophisticated and a lot of her works are beautiful mm. visually, um, she's certainly known for her sparseness uh, rather than her expressionism. Yeah. <laughs> so the show is not, it, the show is sparse and it has that slightly black and white um, aesthetic, uh, which is usually not my cup of tea, but I really liked it. It yeah. looks very elegant. And although uh, there are physically few things in the two rooms that make up cell project space, they do feel, they do really create a powerful narrative that fills the space. So immediately as you enter... Yeah, there's uh, Donald Rodney's work. Absolutely, uh, Psalms. Yeah. Do you want to describe... I mean, it's such a kind of key work. Yeah, um, well, uh, basically, the work is, is titled uh, Psal Psalms. You yeah. can pronounce it better than me. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but it was made, it, it's basically his uh, mobility chair. Uh, Donald Rodney was, um, most who know him will know that he was uh, suffering from sickle cell anemia, uh, which he eventually died from in 1998. And uh, that was a big part of the work that he made uh, uh, in the latter part of his life. And previously, he'd been um, very involved with the formation of the uh, Black Hearts movement mm. in the UK, along with his peers, artists like Eddie Chambers, for example, and others. And um, so his illness, uh, not least because sickle cell anemia is so often uh, associated uh, with blackness, so came to be a big part of his politics and his very politicised artistic practice. And um, he was um, so ill towards the end of his life that he was very sadly unable to attend the private view to his own solo show at South London Gallery mm. uh, in 97. That's a year before his death. And so he submitted... Uh, his own uh, mobility chair as a work and he modified it so he equipped it he worked with a very advanced for that time uh, I guess um, digital um, mm. technology uh, well digital technician I guess um, and he created a, a software that he attached with a computer to the chair which um, means that the chair is basically a kind of cybernetic uh, apparatus and it moves around, it scans the room for, with these sensors that are attached to it so it scans the room and it can track the movement of people and objects around the room and it moves autonomously and it supposedly, well it is quite effective it, it moves as though it was uh, being piloted remotely and it manages to effectively avoid uh, colliding with other bodies in the room. And so it was, you know, the chair was there at the opening, uh, mm. the artist wasn't, and and it's almost this kind of phantom, uh, yeah, um, object that moves around the room, and it, it, it is quite tragic and very sad and mournful. It's an empty chair, it's worn out. I mean, it's still the original chair uh, from the 90s. It looks old, it's yellowed, the, you know, the upholstery has yellowed and there's something it, it does there's a feel of sickness and an absence and um and death of course to it mm. at the same time it is quite comical and creepy how it moves around and that's part of the wit uh, you know of the artist uh, and part part mm. of how it was 
uh, conceived as a as a piece. So it is. Um, I'm glad I, I got to see it. I think we don't get to see enough of Donald Rodney's work, That's and true. that's a very striking piece, yeah. so it's worth going. The show's still on. It made me think as well of the shifting technologies as well of wheelchair, and also, but not just that, but also how they haven't really, I mean, I think, my, you know, my family, you know, the use of wheelchair in my own life, you know, not personally, but others, you know, and how they actually very much are like that, but also the ways in which there's a huge amount of technology now surrounding able-bodied and um, disabled people um, and how that should... It was interesting to look at that particular chair in a way and see what had changed and what hadn't changed in terms of access and movement as well. Yeah, I think the correct way of describing it is a motorised chair. Um, I don't know... um, I think what's interesting is probably that different people coming to the show with different experiences mm. of illness and disability will make their different associations mm. with, with that particular object. And it's not surprising that you immediately yeah. sort of had the, almost the impulse of relating to your personal experiences. Yeah. And and that's why it's very moving as well. Um, it's very cleverly paired with these paintings by Sam Lip. Um, Sam, Sam Lip is a, a much younger artist who's based in New York. Um, where he co-runs a gallery called uh, Queer Forts. And um, he made a series of paintings um, on metal supports based on pictures he took with his um, phone camera, I believe, of um, crossing signs, um, streetlights in in New York or anyway in the US. And then he uh, turned them into black and white paintings that... Uh, really highlight the the sign that tells you to cross the road. So the stop sign is turned off in the mm. paintings and you see the little silhouette man in sparkling dotted um, almost pixels. And that's a sign that sort of orders it, which is normally what you sort of want to get. You can't wait for the sign to turn on so you can finally walk and, and move on. And there's something very uh, coercive about these paintings being hung around the uh, Donald Rodney's mobility chair, which of course he used because he couldn't walk as easily. So it kind of, they work together. And uh, I think the whole installation has been very carefully thought out like that. Sam Lip is not an artist I was familiar with. Yeah, he's much younger, isn't he? He's of a different generation. He's uh, you list very kindly uh, the list. Uh, he's born in 1989. Oh, yes, I did. I did. If you read my review, you will find dates of birth of all the artists. So, in a way, it's kind of structured in two parts. So, that's the first room, which is Sam Lip and Donald Rodney's work, and then the second space, it's Caroline Lazar and Ad
moments and yeah. junctures at points at which those that fairness is is mm. really not working and is in fact um itself quite a disciplinary fiction so there again the works that deal with ideas around um um discipline and um and they um what what Adrian Piper did was take these forms and fill them in either with totally absurd responses that highlight the i guess the just anal and repetitive and mechanical mm-hmm. and out of touch character of the of the questions um the this juncture between an individual's emotions and aspirations and imagination and the world of labor the world of labor as a whole particularly when you're unemployed and you're trying to somehow deal with how the state treats you as a result um and she also did draw over them and rub rub entire sections of documents so violently or so repetitively that in the end that she consumed the paper so you have big holes yeah there's like a circle you can, yeah yeah and it feels like that's quite significant as well the shape of that the sort of zero or the sort of the shape of this yeah this yeah, yeah I mean, the series you know. is called Vanishing yeah. Point. I think uh, the idea, disappearance, transcending the material world has always been yeah. a kind of leitmotif in Adrian Piper's practice. It's, it's obviously it kind of touches on the idea of a conceptual practice that is ephemeral, but also um, I always saw it in her work as a commentary on the, on the violences that are attached to existing materially in a body, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the earlier work, which I mentioned a little bit in the review just to give a little bit more context for those who are maybe not as familiar with Adrian Piper's work. Yeah. Again, an artist who could be shown a lot more in the UK, I think. Yeah, there was a large show last year at MoMA, I think that may have travelled, but yeah. uh, which yeah. we reviewed as well, so if, if anyone wants to find that, I'm sure they can in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, it's, that, that, it's interesting that sort of, you'd mentioned that Zen-like uh, space in a way in that work, because it's actually kind of ironically captured perhaps in Carolyn Lazard's White Noise yeah. in a way. This, yeah. Um, and that's what I yeah. mean when I say the show's been thought out really well, and I appreciated yeah. that a lot. So Carolyn's Lazard, um, that's uh, the work is called A Conspiracy, um, and it consists. It's an installation that was originally uh, made in uh, the U.S. Carolyn Lazard is based in the U.S. Um, for uh, Essex Street, and it's been reproduced for Cell Project Space, and it consists in uh, countless noise machines, essentially as many as it takes to fill the ceiling with these noise machines, uh, DOM noise machines, which is the sort of standard uh, brand that is bought universally, that is to this day used in hospitals. They go back a long way. I think they were originally patented and created in the 70s. Mm-hmm. If I'm not wrong, they have a very sort of 70s, now a kind of 70s sci-fi look. Um, and yeah, they make this vibrating uh, white noise sound, which is... It, it is a soothing sound. It's believed to be and proved to be a soothing sound, and it's, that's why it's used in hospitals and in other kind of um, contexts. Uh, I find it very unsettling. I've never liked it. Uh, it is, and then when it's installed like that, when you have loads of them just over your head buzzing, uh, it is very uncomfortable. And coupled with the neon lights, I mean, of course, the installation is supposed to sort of bring out um, the unnerving quality of really the whole medical world and the the kind of care complex designed to um on the surface soothe uh, and calm patients uh, but i guess the message here is also to in in some way torture them yeah it's uh, unnerving yes, isn't it to yes. to think what it, and also to 
again, it covers that space erasure or what's outside of this noise that we're not hearing. I guess there's this blanketing of another yeah. noise that we're not privy to or access we don't have access to, which I guess is another layer within the, the installation. And I found it, and again, there's that, and there's, there's more meanings to be made, yeah. I think, for all these works. And that's, it was interesting, Karen Lazard, that's the obvious meaning, this yeah. sense of being, you know, this ominous, dystopian, um, mentally intrusive sonic environment. Uh, but then there's also, this, yeah, the play with the, um, with the work by Adrian Piper and this idea that maybe you kind of make your own Zen environment mm. out of these very unpleasant situations you're cornered into. So you sort of learn to then maybe deal with the sound and that becomes something that is simultaneously perhaps very disturbing mm. uh, and annoying and at the same time uh, reassuring. It can function both ways at the same time. So yeah. I am, uh, I love Carol Lazard. I, I mean, I, don't know them that well. I don't know their work that well. But what I've seen, I've read of theirs, I think is fantastic. And I'm very excited to see more. Um, yeah, they currently, I think they have work at the Whitney Biennial as well, if anyone is listening <laughs> nearby <laughs> in New York. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it makes me also, I was trying to think of, uh, you know, it makes me think. My friend, a friend of mine, lived in New York, and they used to continually play white noise in their house because of the amount of noise outside their house. And they used to tell me, "Oh, you know, that's the only way that they can live." And mm -hmm. I tried it in my house. Anyway, mm -hmm. and it's a slightly ridiculous uh, side side note, but uh, well, I feel like I've lived with someone who uh, was very keen on it being played at night, and mm. um, I found it very difficult. I had a lot of nightmares. It just really didn't agree with my brain, and I, that experience of being of it being forced upon you mm. is very different from you choosing it because yes and I think that's the reference here is to hospitals and rooms therapy rooms where it's used and perhaps um, Karen Lazard being someone who's uh, practice whose life is uh, shaped by their chronic illness mm -hmm. and whose practice as an artist and a writer is, is very much shaped by that this is perhaps a commentary on um, it, you know, being forced into a situation in which you're just so vulnerable mm. and you're completely in the hands of a, of a, on a, in a keep, a mm. medical keep or um, a, a nursing team that, um, you know, they, you're just, you're powerless essentially. And you, you feel this very bodily invasion coming at you from every front. Mm. Yeah, it's powerful. It's powerful work, and it's. I mean, it's a great show, um, and that Lazard's work that's also catalogued online. A lot of her write, their writing is online. Isn't yeah, it? their website is very rich. So what yeah. I know about their work, I've actually um, ascertained from their website. Yeah. There's quite a lot of video material, and it's beautiful. I mean, this is a moment when quite a lot of really interesting artists are emerging around questions. Um, to do with the politics of chronic illness um, and how they intersect perhaps with other um, politics and other questions that have been at the core of um, interesting art, art making, mm. you know, throughout the 20th century. And I think some of these are some of the most interesting and articulate artists, at least for me at the moment. Uh, so people like Joanna Hedberg and Caroline Lazard and yeah. maybe New K, Jesse Darling. And, and, and so um, a lot of that material is is pres is available on the website, but hopefully they'll come and do a show in yeah, you the throw, UK. You throw a sort of gauntlet down at the yeah. end, though, which is uh, hopefully uh, a much larger exhibition will take yes, place. Yes, I'd yeah. like for someone to yeah. listeners 
buckle up, <laughs> do something. Give me this exhibition. You should do it. Do you? Mm. That's what I say. Uh, okay, we may have time to come back to some of the. We certainly have time to come back to some of the ideas that you raised there, uh, Connell. Though, uh, let's start with uh, what you written this month, uh, which was about sort of looked at the sort of two shows. Uh, one that's currently at Whitechapel Gallery, um, Queer Spaces, if I recall rightly, without looking at the page, uh, and another show that was in Birmingham. Um, so these were the sort of the bedrock. I would say where you kind of pulled these two shows together and sort of yeah. came to these sort of uh, series of intersecting ideas around uh, what the archive, how we depict it uh, in terms of queer methodologies, queer practices, and uh, and how these two shows went about doing that. Do you want to talk a bit about these two shows and yeah, uh, yeah. how they so, approach the um, subject? First of all, we have um, Queer Spaces, uh, London, 1980s to today at Whitechapel yeah. Gallery. Um, specifically in the archive spaces of Whitechapel, which is um, a space where they both house their own archive and they open out other institutional archives or archives in general in the context of looking at art and arts history. Yeah. Um, so for this show, um, it's sort of a, a quite a collaborative effort. Um, it sort of combines the in-house team um, Naya Yukimaki, uh, Vasilius Dupas, um, and uh, UCL Urban Laboratory, headed by Dr. Ben Campen, and <clears throat> a whole sort of um, coterie of queer uh, networks um, that have come around really um, the erasure of queer space in London in recent years. Um, you're looking at a statistic of over 50% of spaces in the last decade. Um, so um, Queer Spaces Network, which involves spaces like the Vauxhall Tavern, um, Royal Vauxhall Tavern, um, have have worked together with Rays Collective and other spaces um, to sort of really situate um, the, the, this crisis yeah. of a sort um, within sort of wider activist campaigns that have been ongoing around what it means to be queer in the, the present. Um, and, and, and this is sort of, this, this has come to be housed in the Whitechapel Gallery archive in, in sort of dialogue with artworks which the in-house team um, have selected. Yeah. So this includes um, UK artists, quite young artists, it's important to say often London-based, mm -hmm. um, Evan Ifakoya, Prem Sahib, um, uh, uh, Hastings and Quinlan, um, and one last. Um, um, well, one that's outside, uh, it's Tom Bear, isn't it? But Tom, Tom Bear, the yeah. US artist, yes. Ralph Dunn is the other. Ralph Dunn, sorry, yeah. Ralph Dunn. Um, and really this sort of creates a sort of a, a really uh, rich um, dialogue um, between sort of what seems like quite an old-fashioned kind of archival yeah. display, really, you know, take of it what you mm. will. It might be a shock to some people expecting something a little bit more um, bravura or, you know, yeah. in, 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 in a sense when the, the, the queer archive has really challenged the very nature of what an archive can represent, mm. I suppose, you know, it, it does sort of contain quite sort of, you know, vitrine-like displays, but... I think when you spend time with it, I think what you see is that um, this is sort of drawn in further archival content. So you have quite a lot of material from Bishopsgate and LSE, LGBT mm -hmm. 
archives, um, Bishopsgate, including the the, the um, lesbian and gay news media archive, which is an amazing resource in itself. You know, tells incredible stories about the representation of LGBTQ people in this country. Um, and then this whole sort of added archive of research, which Ben Campen at UCL has put together, which is interviewing. Um, individuals from historic LGBTQ spaces in London. Um, and that really, um, I think, adds this whole other layer to the sort of the, 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 the audience engagement and the sense of, I think, sort of how publics come together, how publics are formed in, in queer culture. Mm -hmm. And I think the really valuable thing here is that, you know, it really moves beyond kind of you know, the, 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 although they are very important, of course, the older spaces um, like the Black Cap or the Royal Foxhall Tavern, um, to maybe look at more recent spaces like the Joiners oh, yeah, Arms, the, joiners, yeah. um, the, the, the Glass Bar, which, you know, mm. is a sort of an interim space, I suppose yeah. you would say. But actually what this starts to sort of um, unfold is, is more of the sort of intersections of LGBTQ identities in, in this country and really start to look at uh, histories which maybe haven't been um, exposed enough, like, you know, queer spaces run by women or anarchists mm -hmm. or uh, people of color. Um, and I think for me, that's when it really starts to come to life. And I think the artworks as these sort of archives in themselves. <coughs> yeah. I'm thinking about Prem Sahib's work, yeah. which is an object, which is a found object from uh, the recently closed chariots in, yeah. in uh, Shoreditch, um, you know, which takes this very sort of like Grecian object and the inheritance of the white male body as the sort of Renaissance Victorian ideal of male beauty and sort of literally sort of um, sh sort of shot through with his sort of autobiography, his history mm. of being um, a South Asian British man. Um, and pierces this object with sort of large piercings. I mean, it has, you know, there's, there's sort of so much in these objects. Or, or Evan Ifakoya's work, which sort of in, invades the work in a really sort of pleasant way. There's two pieces, actually. There's a literal sort of archive display of objects, which seems quite personal on a kind of light box. But then there's Evan singing. Um, and it, it, to me, it sounds like when I'm singing sort of absentmindedly when I'm working on something on a laptop. OK. And it's two songs that I really loved. It's like you keep hearing Peace in the Valley. It just, you know, takes me back to my 90s yeah. <laughs> sort of like dancing in the kitchen or whatever. Um, and Jimmy Principal's um, Waiting for an Angel. And I think, you know, this this. There's, there's sort of the body archive coming into yeah. this. There's the, 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 the archive of feelings. The, there are these sort of more recent queer and trans notions, again, of what the archive can be. You know, the yeah, archive pushed way, to its limits. Yeah, it is that thing. Because the is so partial, especially when mm. we're talking about queer histories in a way, because they were largely unrecorded, that in a sense, that's the space which artists can fulfill a different kind of for, uh, function in a way, the sort of speculative elements of how we picture and represent these histories that otherwise may not exist because they are not, they have not been uh, recorded or they are not simply available. And I think, yeah. we, I think if we look back to last year largely because that was the year of 
and, and that creates another thorny subject. But anyway, the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1967, and yeah, you know, in and, England, and, yeah. yeah, and how yeah. that created a sort of wave of uh, you know shows. Was it last year? Well, yeah, yeah, it was last year? Was it? Yeah, there, there was definitely yeah. a very intense focus yeah. on the significance of that on an institutional level. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it really felt like um you know the, the the marginality i think historic marginality of lgbtq culture was being addressed mm. um you know we've got this series of anniversaries coming up i suppose you know stonewall has just celebrated 50 yeah. years you know scotland next year will have an anniversary because 1980 was their decriminalization 82 for northern ireland yeah. so i guess you know, there's, there's all these sort of histories, I think, that are that are ripe for consideration, not least as the the generations who, um, you know, made these these changes yeah. effective are now old. And there's a very necessary, I think, transgenerational, mm. intergenerational conversation happening here as well. Yeah, um, and in a way, the, your argument moves then in terms of the, imp, you know, how well, largely it takes up the subject of gentrification and the, the effect of, you know, basically LGBTQ people moving into urban centers, which, you know, Sarah Shulman discusses in her book, uh, Gentrification of the Mind. Yeah. And, you know, how how that displacement creates its own forms of problems in a way and how that's then dealt with or yeah. not. <laughs> well, I think for for the just to speak briefly about the piece, for me it was important because I think you know the objects speak for themselves. But I think there is this very well established critical framework for art, sort of critical self consciousness of how it in, inter, mm -hmm. interacts and intersects with gentrification. Yeah, um, and there is this sort of reconsideration of these histories within recent works, and I mean recent, maybe the last two decades, let's say, of, you know, sort of memoirs, really, of, of you know, like Shulman and, and Samuel Delaney's work, of the, the, the risk of erasure and the risk of sort of losing um, yeah. histories um, and histories being overwritten. I mean, Shulman's book very much starts with the shock mm -hmm. of realising on the uh, uh, of a, 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 the, the 30th anniversary of the announcement of HIV, that the history was already being overwritten. This propels, you know, this her polemic. This propels her need to recover these histories. But it's very much, I think, determined as a collective memoir, and I use that term in the piece specifically yeah. because I think that sort of D Delaney's legacy, as well, in terms of. Um, you know, sort of reaffirming that these these erasures really do try to disempower. It is um, a, a political mm. um, manipulation to let these fall out of sight. And really, I think LGBTQ people have to reclaim these yeah. histories. And it's interesting in a way because a lot of these, like both Delaney and Shulman, largely focused specifically focused on New York. And it's for me, I was interested in the show that's in Birmingham largely because. Mm. That's something outside of those, let's say, more dominant narratives of both New York, San Francisco, London, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, so it was interesting to kind of find a way through that show. Can you talk a little bit about that show and how that... Yeah, so um, the other show, which is now finished, is The Club's Conception or How the Egg Was Cracked. And um, again, it's a, a sort of a curatorial project um, by Ryan Kearney, who's a Birmingham-born, Birmingham and London-based curator. Um, and it sort of continues, develops um, Kearney's recent projects, which are very much going into the archive and 
finding ways to sort of make public or to sort of re-engage sort of these these archival histories. Mm. This focuses on Nightingales, which is the oldest LGBTQ space in Birmingham. It goes back to 1969. Oh, right. um, and um, it foregrounds the, the, these um, the, this research partly through the LGBT Centre archive held in the Library of Birmingham but also in a, in a sort of a more creative sense through the limits of sort of sharing these archives. I don't think they were as privileged as Whitechapel, let's say, in terms of what they could access, but I think Kearney very much uses this as a, as a, as a sort of potential mm-hmm. um, and collaborates um, uh, with, with an architect to um, make models and to sort of redisplay sort of quite ephemeral material like sketches which describe the interim spaces that Nightingale's yeah. inhabited from 69 to 94, I think it is, when it, it defined its current location. And these histories are, are so rich, they're so fascinating, you know, they really tell, tale, tell, tell sort of fascinating stories about how LGBTQ culture has changed, you know, going from a male-only, male homosocial environment, private club, you had to be signed in. I think women couldn't buy drinks until 1991, you know, yeah. make of that what you will. Um, but, you know, to sort of successive changes and, you know, you can see the influence of other sort of queer cultures, other sex cultures, other identities sort of blending and sort of, you know, the, the, this, the architecture of the space, the politics of the space changing. But, I mean, I think that's another thing to emphasize. A lot of this is happening under a kind of a... Uh, sort of humanities and spatial practice critique as well. It's not necessarily happening solely through the vehicle of sort of art history. Yeah. It's not sort of happening solely through sort of again LGBTQ histories or yeah. It's it's sort of a hybrid sort of activity, and I think Kearney very successfully sort of carries that. There was a, a fabulous event which I didn't get to attend, which I loved the sound off. Um, there was this uh, sort of fictional, um, this sort of fictional land come kind of honor system that was created by the people who founded the bar, and he did this uh, public event that was sort of trying to revisit this and figure out what it was. But I think with all of these things, he's also trying to challenge some of the problems in these histories, like what it means from a queer feminist standpoint to think about sort of male homosocial spaces, what it means to think about who gets to access these spaces, Mm. or, you know, how hard won these spaces were and how we sort of understand those the complexity of those histories without flattening them out without sort of limiting our sort of reach into those histories absolutely um well there's lots to say there connell um but i feel that we might have to move on Mm -hmm. um which is a shame but just the nature of what we have to do here so uh maybe we get to talk a little later um if at least, well, maybe offline. <laughs> but uh, uh, Vladimir, uh, you covered uh, a recent show at Peltz Gallery of uh, Laura Mulvey and Peter Wallen's work. Um, I guess for me, they're both, well, certainly Laura's, Laura Mulvey's writing is, is someone I know more as a writer rather than a practitioner. And so it's kind of interesting that this show highlighted a period of work uh, made in the 70s largely, although I think it crept into the 80s as well. Um, yeah, and yeah. a collaborative film practice um, and it sort of threaded together uh, both the sort of film works but also sort of uh, archival material talking about archives uh, alongside that um, can you talk a little bit about the range of this work and the kind of let's talk a little bit about the guiding force of why they collaborated and what was the sort of driving force of their practice at that point because it mm-hmm. came through their writing in a way 
Yes. Uh, so, I mean, it can be a bit challenging to talk about their work since it's related to what Erika was saying earlier. Like Liz Rhodes, it spans uh, almost, I mean, 50 years now. Um, their col collaboration started in the late 60s and uh, moved uh, through out of 70s, then in the 80s as well. It was, I mean, to my knowledge, uh, a, a private connection as well. Um, so at the end of 60s, with the publication of uh, Peter Wallen's uh, quite influential book, Signs and Meaning in Cinema, uh, then it continued in the 70s with, of course, Laura Malvey's groundbreaking essay uh, that we all know about now, I'm sure, uh, it's, which is uh, Visual Pleasures and Narrative Cinema, written in 1973, uh, but then published only two years after in the screen, uh, in the screen magazine. Um, so that period of begin late 60s, beginning of 70s is, to my knowledge, generally considered their, if not the peak of their collaboration, but uh, the time in during which they sort of gained a wider recognition. Mm -hmm. um, and at least not just in the UK, but at, uh, abroad in the continental Europe, they're mainly known for that, for that period, for those works. Um, in 1974, in the similar, at the same time, they started collaborating on a series of films as well uh, that will result in a, in a collaboration of uh, six, um, doing six films together uh, all the way into the 80s. But uh, the aspect that it is maybe less known of their work is uh, mainly their curatorial, curatorial work or sort of exhibition making work. Uh, and um, it seems to me that this exhibition in uh, Pelt's gallery uh, tried to sort of emphasize that underrepresented or maybe neglected aspect of their of their career. Um, of course, their each of their each of their parts of each parts of their work is sort of intertwined with each other. So, for instance, when they started working on uh, films in the early seventies, that was while Peter Walling, Wallen was teaching at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. So that educational aspect that is essential to their career as well um, was always prominent while doing, uh, while f making films uh, or organizing exhibitions as well. Um, so uh, Pelt's Gallery is a small gallery uh, associated with Birkbeck University mm -hmm. where Laura Malvey uh, taught and I think she still teaches there at least uh, part-time. Um, uh, it's a, it's quite small, it's a rather small space, and therefore it seems to me that it presented a certain challenge to the curators. Curators are two young uh, researchers and film scholars, uh, Nicolas Helm Grovas and uh, Oliver Fug. And I think they did a really pretty good job considering the limitations sort of of space and uh, considering the fact that you have to put uh, almost 50 years of, of yeah, work. Material, of, yeah. yes, um, and how closely involved were Laura Mulvey um, were they involved in the show, Peter Wallet? Were they involved in the show? Uh, yes, uh, Laura was definitely, yeah. and um, I mean, I think that uh, Peter's second uh, wife was also involved yeah, as well. Say, yeah. um, so they provided some of the materials yeah. as well, uh, you know, mainly including correspondence with other artists such as y Yvonne Reiner. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's an eclectic it's an eclectic body of work. Um, also. Uh, that, as I said, includes uh, not just um, not just moving image, but includes uh, uh, correspondences. In it includes other works that done by other artists influenced by uh, Laura and Peter. So, I mean, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating life. It's a fascinating body of work, and I'm I'm 
I can only say express my regrets that it hasn't been uh, maybe exhibited in a bigger, even bigger mm. space. But it was done mainly um, due to, I think, Bergbeck and also due to the fact that one of the curators uh, did a PhD on their work. Yeah, was that all of Nicholas. Oh, Nicholas. Yeah, Nick. Yes. So, um, yes. Because um. I remember, actually, was it two years ago, Whitechapel did a, a series of screenings. Yes. I think that's, yeah, that, that strikes a memory, um, a Same, series of talks. Yeah. As this time, so it's important to also to mention that the retrospective of their work was organized as well. Uh, Bergbeck has a small cinema, uh, Bergbeck Institute for Moving Image, so retrospective of their work was there. Um I think Erica gave one of the talks or, or participated in it as well. So um, the, it, it was it was a more a, c- a celebration, I think, a three month almost long celebration of their work, uh, and uh, I think it was definitely a successful one. Now it's finished, unfortunately, but um, their work is still there, and the result is this. Uh, I have it here. It's a beautiful little booklet, uh, a blue catalog uh, of an exhibition um, written in a very Poetic, uh, lyrical, and uh, like very reflexive, uh, essayistic way um, by the two curators, and so anybody can at least uh, have a look at that and sort of get a sense of of the exhibition. And they themselves, I mean, you mentioned the uh, dialogues with fellow artists and filmmakers, including Yvonne Rayner and Victor Bergen. Do you want to talk a little bit about how collaborative their practice was? I mean, you talked about education and their role in sort of teaching and so on. How? instrumental or important is that element in shaping the the films that were on show well i think collaboration as such is essential to to their work um it's also essential i think in a, in a curation of the it was obviously essential in a curation of this show as well um to me it's hard to say uh there there are there are correspondences with fellow artists uh, there are works of fellow artists as i mentioned Unfortunately, a lot of their work hasn't been finished or, or, or hasn't moved from a sort of initial phase. Um, so they did six films together. Um, a lot of, a lot of um, theoretical work has been only left in, uh, in some, let's say, sketches and so on. Yeah. A new book by Laura Malvi is about to be published, in, I think, in November or October. So that's something to look forward. Oh, really? What is yes. that new writings by her? Yes. Yeah. So that's something to look forward about. Um, and... Um, Hopefully, I mean, someone else will, as as it was the case with the previous um, works, you know, make even a bigger show maybe yeah. one day. I mean, you mentioned a couple of films that uh, exist in a more fragmented form. How were they shown? They're sort of... Uh, uh, how were, they, were those sort of shown in any way? Those sort of like Lillian Martin from '97, Chess Fever, and Eisenstein in Mexico. How did they go about presenting those works that are still unfinished? Unfortunately, they were only show, they were only visible. I mean, we could only see the sketches for them. Right. So, I mean, drawings, uh, some uh, you know bits and pieces of uh, of uh, maybe uh, certain ideas and concepts behind it. Um, so uh, they were they were exhibited in a glass panel in a central in a central part of the room. So you would sort of walk through the gallery, mm-hmm. um, but the exhibition wasn't focused on the chronological aspect mm-hmm. of the display, which I think was a good idea. Um, and I, I mentioned briefly in a, in a text, uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I mentioned that it's sort of, uh, I think the guiding line was a sort of a concept of a montage um, that you jump from one thing to another, then come back to it, and mm. so on. And um, that was mainly guided by a by a very famous 1982 Whitechapel exhibition on Tina Modotti and oh, Frida yeah. Kahlo. The yeah. two of them did, yes, because they were, as I said, I mean they were mm. curators as well. 
uh, and that played an important aspect mm. yeah, in their work. I mean, it's interesting to think of the parallels between between someone like these works of uh, Mulvey and Mullen and Liz Rhodes in a way, and perhaps we don't have much time to tease out the, the, the sort of synchronicities between these two sort of time frames, but are there any thoughts we can ca- perhaps land on very easily? <laughs> Erica? Well, I would say that both practices are really deeply invested in a politics of signification. Mm -hmm. I mean, that idea of problematizing self-expression or the neutrality of language um, is something that cuts across both of them. And I actually think that we today can learn a lot of lessons from that moment Mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s. Well, at that note... I'm going to have to draw a line uh, under tonight's uh, proceedings, which is a shame, really. But uh, um, as I say, uh, any all these isu- all these uh, articles rather in this current issue of Art Monthly, that's the July-August issue. Uh, it leaves me to thank Sarah LJ for her wonderful engineering of tonight's episode, and to thank all the listeners uh, for listening, of course, for listening themselves. Uh, and many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>